Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I am here with my wonderful co-host, Deb. We apologize for not having a show. Again, our lives get in the way all the time. And tonight, talk show is giving us nothing but grief. I love technology. So hopefully it'll start recording from now and not, because it said that we started at 8 o'clock and now it's like 8.11. And I guess when, when I start the recording, that's what they're going to they're gonna start it from, so that you don't have like 10 minutes of empty air and go running away. How are you tonight? <laughs> oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's, uh, you know, just another night of fun computer whatever. I know. And yesterday was my birthday. It was Easter Sunday. And I heard that you had a really cute Easter Sunday. Oh, we had quite a, quite a, but quite a day with the children. Yes, they were going all day long. They couldn't get <laughs> the night before, and then they were so excited and running around and driving us crazy. Yep, yep, the wonderment of children. And, uh, I just turned 57, folks. I'm not shy about my age. I'm shocked that I moved to 57, so <laughs> I'm kind of proud of it. Um, yeah. I've, had some close I've had some close calls in my life, including uh, having a gun put to the back of my head. So um, I'm kind of excited I made it this far. You know what I'm saying, Deb? I'm shocked I've made it as far as I have. I've got a few mm-hmm. years on you, but I didn't yeah. over 30, actually. <laughs> I mean, even, especially living up here, because um, I've had some really dangerous things happen being up here. Um, I flipped over the one time, it was like five or six years ago, my, I was snowmobiling, and the whole snowmobile came out from underneath me, and I flipped over the top of it, and it fell over, and I mean, there's been a lot of different things. I was thinking about it yesterday. I had a pretty bad day yesterday, but um, today's much better, and um I was thinking about all the stuff that I've been through in my life and the things I've seen. Uh, I've been all over the entire North American continent, including Canada and Alaska, twice. Um, And I survived all of it. I've had moose come into my tent almost (laughs) in Alaska. Um, I was just thinking about everything. But if you want to know about it, you can go to Amazon.com and download the uh, Internet version of my novel, Opening and Register Nurses' Eyes. A life-altering journey across North America, and that'll give you tell you everything that you need to know about that journey. But um, and then I think about all the women that we've been talking about here on the show and their lives, and they're they're way in the grave. But they, everyone we found, ladies and gentlemen, has been extraordinary. And if, even if we couldn't find a lot of information on them, we found a lot of information around them and what they would go through. And, of course, this is about the Revolutionary War and Women of the Revolution. This is an endeavor that Deb and I thought might have lasted six months, maybe a year. We're going on four and a half years. That means all this information about all these women you have no idea about, and we're never told, except for certain ones of them. But um, tonight we're going to do a loyalist. We uh, try to do a loyal, two loyalists and two patriots a month. Also, we try to do the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence once a month, and we're almost done with that endeavor. If I can just get it up real quick, um, I can tell everybody what, where we're at at that. 
because we've gone through all of the colonies except for uh, kind of a few. And I think we only have um, two more. I think it's, uh, yeah, North Carolina. No, we did that. All right. So that will be ending soon. But um, tonight we're going to be doing talking about a patriot woman. Now, I mean, a loyalist woman. Now, what makes this very interesting and we were both fascinated by it. We're always fascinated by what we found. But we're going to actually go pre-Revolutionary War. And we are going to start, what did I say we're going to start? Uh, 1769 to 1775. And the reason is that this is when this woman came over here to the colonies, not knowing what she was going to encounter, not knowing what she was getting into, because Things started heating up around 1763 in the colonies. And this is a really good snapshot of, like, you're just walking into this chaos. And she didn't stay through the Revolutionary War. We're going to be getting into that, too. She kind of lived. They all they kind of ran away. I was going to tell you why. But her name is Anne Halton. And actually, she came here with her brother. She never married while she was in the colonies. We don't know. Um, if she did afterwards, because she went back to England. But she was not married when she came here. She came here with her brother, his wife, and their children. And she was, con- no, she was auntie, and she helped take care of the kids while she was here. So we're going to start with her story. It was a little bit from the Women's History blog. But then we're going to get into more of everything that was surrounding her. Because, again, we don't have that much on her. But you're going to get a glimpse of what this poor woman had no clue what she was getting herself into at all. So let's start with that, okay? Deb, do you have anything to add? Uh, well, just the reason we don't have much on her is because she does have a book out there. There is a book of her letters, and I looked for it, and it's um, either in libraries, um, in colleges, or it's damn near $100 to buy the book. So <laughs> needless to say, I didn't buy it. I, they didn't really um, make, you know, uh, I think it was the the family that published it. So they didn't publish that many copies. You know, it's not like today where, you know, a million copies sold in the first week. Um, so it's, it's a rarity, and it's not digitized. So eh, hopefully it will be soon. Yeah, um, it's a shame because they do mention that here and in the articles and that what her letters were going to uh, describe. But, you know, Deb and I don't have $100 for a book. <laughs> now, there's, a, there's, there's about 10 books out there that, um, that are on my wish list. And I'm waiting for, you know, someone, my fairy god book mother to show up. Okay, so Anne Halton was a sister of Boston's Commissioner of Customs. And like some 15 to 35% of the white colonial population of British loyalists. Loyalists were American colonists who remained loyal to Great Britain during and after the Revolutionary War. They were often referred to as Tories, Royalists, or Kingsmen by the Patriots who 
those who supported the American cause. Most of what is known about Anne Holton comes from the letters she wrote to her friend Elizabeth Lightbody between 1763 and 1767. Now, she was still in England in 1763. That's why we didn't go that far. And she left. So, and that's where that ends. Um, so, I, this is, unfortunately, we couldn't get these letters because it would have been wonderful to read what she had to say. But, um, uh, let's see. Because, as the, the, the writer is saying here, the letters offer a first, first-hand view of political relations in the pre-war period. But we actually did a lot of research, and we're going to give you a really good insight to the pre-war period. So I'm not worried about that. So they also chronicled the everyday life of an upper-class 18th century woman in colonial America. And they portray a friendship between two women worry about one another's health, share news of friends and relations, and maintain their correspondence even in wartime. Now, know this, Deb and I say this all the time. Any kind of correspondence, especially across the pond, is going to take months to get there. So everything that she's talking about happened a long time before her her friend Elizabeth got it. All right. um, Hilton's work, I'm not even going to get into that because we don't know (laughs) <laughs> we don't have her letters. Anne Halton's birth date is unknown. Uh, her father was John Halton of Chester, and she never married. She did, however, become an important member of her brother's growing family, which consisted of Henry, Henry, his wife Elizabeth, and the four sons whose birth were noted in Halton's letters. In September 1767, Anne announced two exciting events, Henry Halton's appointment to a post in the colonies and the birth of his first child. Henry and his wife wanted Anne to accompany them to their new home, and he had promised to take good care of her there. She also laid out her intentions to do something productive in the colony. She planned to establish herself as either a merchant or planter. Henry Halton left England ahead of his family, arriving in Boston in November 1767. Anne Halton left for the colonies early in 1768, traveling with Elizabeth and the baby Thomas. On her arrival in Massachusetts five weeks later, Halton got a clearer view of political life there, which presumably deflated her ideas of becoming a tradesman, tradeswoman, which it did. So what we're going to do is we're going to start to, um, uh, no, from 7063, that's what I told you. We're going to do a, a synopsis of what was going on from 17. 17- 63 to 1768 when she got there. They have found a wonderful site, and it's just going to give a blurb about everything, and then if we find something interesting, we'll delve into explain more. But this was before she even came to the the colonies. And most, the average um, Englander, British person in Britain, didn't really know what was going on in America. Um, and can you explain that a little bit? Because I'm thinking it is because the politicians didn't want them to know as much, especially he was going to be a commissioner. I don't think they would tell him everything that he was going to uh, encounter, right? Well, it depends. Um, you have to remember that the, the British Army was already here. It had been, you know. Um, they had fought the uh, French and Indian War, which... Which is uh, 
King George II's war that when he died um, and his his son came in in 62, George III, he had to, he basically came to the throne with an empty treasury and, um, you know, war. They had been in, so uh, they had been fighting everybody, you know. They just, England was always at war with somebody. So, um, and they were colonizing other places, you know, uh, West Indies and, and, um, all those islands that they they had taken over and put their you know like sugar plantations on and, and all that. So he comes in and you know he's got to rectify these situations. So he gets Granville, uh, the prime minister, to uh, start looking into this because you have to remember that yeah King George was the king, but Parliament made the laws. Well, unless King George said, no, you know, I don't want that law. But then he had to fight the parliament because it was, it was they were really the government. So things had changed a bit. And, and George II, he was a kind of, he was a war, a war king, and he just was hands off the government part of it. He didn't really care about that. And so George III came in and said, no, I'm going to take the reins back a bit more. So this is the beginning, um, and the newspapers, there weren't very many newspapers in the colonies at this time. In the next 10, 12 years, um, they started to, you know, people would start uh, newspapers and whatnot, and, uh, and, and you know, get the, uh, get the, news over, but the, it was more the colonists, as we discussed in another, as we discussed in another show, it was the colonists who were, who were looking forward to the news from England, um, that, and, you know, if anything came in, they would go to the tavern, because the tavern, the public houses would have, you know, they were like the, the communication centers for the community, so... Um, it, it really wasn't. They, they, Londoners didn't care about the colonies unless they were merchants and they exported to the colonies. I, I mean, your average Londoner or Englander, Britoner, uh, didn't really care what was going on in the colonies. Um, you know, they had their own lives, and and unfortunately, in the 1760s, things were pretty tough in England. So. They were having their own problems. All right, so let's start with the timeline that you found. Okay. 1763. Yeah, this is from the historyplace.com website. And it's Prelude to Revolution, 1763 to 1775 timeline here. So in 1763, the Proclamation of 1763 was signed by King George III, and it prohibited any English settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains and requires those already settled in those regions to return east in an attempt to ease tensions with Native Americans. Um, this upset those, because you have to remember, the Appalachian Mountains were the, the uh, wilderness at this time. 
that. that you're, you're going into unknown territory, pretty much, um, except for the few intrepid souls who had crossed them. And, and things are getting, you know, starting to get a little crowded in along the coastline. And um, people uh, also came here because they had been persecuted in other places, and they just wanted to be left alone, make a nice farm or, um, you know, a life for their families and, and set up their own communities without you know, whoever was oppressing them breathing down their necks. So a lot of uh, people who came over and wanted to go westward into the wilderness were those who, who had had it. They just wanted to be left alone and to live their own lives and, you know, raise up their families, create a community of like-minded souls, whatever, you know. But um, King George, uh, especially after the French-Indian War, uh, you know, things were a little tense. So he said, no, no, you cannot go over there, and if you're over there, you got to come back. Well, that didn't set well. So that was the, the first thing that wrangled the, the colonists. But that didn't really pertain to a lot of, the colonies, so yeah, all right, whatever. Now, in 1764, the the infamous Sugar Act <laughs> that you've all heard about is passed by the English Parliament to offset the war debt brought on by the French and Indian War and to help pay for the expenses of running the colonies and newly acquired territories. This act increases the duties on imported sugar and other items such as textiles, coffee, wines, and indigo. It doubles the duties on foreign goods reshipped from England to the colonies and also forbids the import of foreign rum and French wines. Well, that's just rude right there. Uh, that, that's just not right. You're getting down on the, the rum and the wines here. That's just my own editorial. Then also in 64, a lot happened in 64. The English Parliament passes a measure to reorganize the American customs system to better enforce British trade laws, which have often been ignored in the past. A court is established in Halifax, Nova Scotia, that will have jurisdiction over all the American colonies and trade matters. And, you know, they weren't even a part of the uh, Nova Scotia, was um, not even a part of the colonies. But, uh, you know, uh, Britain got a lot of the Canadian territory back or from French, the French after the French-Indian War. So, Okay, now, also in 1764, the Currency Act prohibits the colonists from issuing any legal tender paper money. This act threatens to destabilize the entire colonial economy of both the industrial north and the agricultural south thus uniting the colonists against it. You can see this is like King is going, okay, you've had a free run for a long time here because my dad did not really pay much attention, and but we're getting down to the brass tacks. And he came down with one right after the other. The parliament was just very, very busy. And there was a lot of debate. Um, if you can, look up um, some of the parliamentary... Uh, debates that were going on during this time, and you'll you'll find the parliamentarians who were, you know, pro-colonies um, and, and those who 
look down their nose at the uh, those rabble rousing cuckoos over in the colony. So it's really interesting to you get a good view of the British arrogance. It's just astounding to me. Also, um, in May in 64, at a town meeting in Boston, James Otis raises the issue of taxation without representation and urges a united response to the recent acts imposed by England. In July, Otis publishes The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved. In August, Boston merchants begin a boycott of British luxury goods. Now, you have to remember, James Otis was married to Mer Mercy, what was, her, what was her maiden name? Mercy, oh gosh, it just went right out of my head. Well, anyways, Mercy Otis, and she wrote a history of the revolution, so if you wanted to, to look into that. And I, that is digitized on the, um, on the, the web here. Uh, I have a downloaded copy in my uh, computer, um, my my other computer, unfortunately, got fried, and I have to find the other, the external hard drive. But, uh, so James Otis, who lived in Boston, was friends with the Adams, John and Abigail, so you can begin to see the, the names are starting to come together, and Sam Adams, you know, he's he's already been, hell, he's been raising uh, raising Cain about uh, America's independence since the 50s. So um, this is just really starting to bubble up and boil over here. So moving on to 1765, in March, the Stamp Act is passed by the English. Parliament imposing the first direct tax on the American colonies to offset the high costs of the British military organization in America. Thus, for the first time in the 150-year history of the British colonies in America, the Americans will pay tax not to their own local legislatures in America, but directly to England, which, I mean, this is the one that, that really set Sam Adams off. So... Under the Stamp Act, all printed materials are taxed, including newspapers, pamphlets, bills, legal documents, licenses, almanacs, dice, and playing cards. The American colonists quickly unite in opposition, led by the most influential segments of colonial society, lawyers, publishers, landowners, shipbuilders, and merchants, who are most affected by the Act, which is scheduled to go into effect on November 1st. Also, in March of 1765, the Quartering Act requires colonists to house British troops and supply them with food. In May, in Virginia, Patrick Henry presents seven Virginia resolutions to the House of Burgesses, claiming that only the Virginia Assembly can legally tax Virginia residents, saying, if this be treason, make the most of it. Also in May, the first medical school in America is founded in Philadelphia. In, six, in July of 65, the Sons of Liberty, an underground organization opposed to the Stamp Act, is formed in a number of colonial towns. Its members use violence and intimidation to eventually force all the British stamp agents to resign and also stop many American merchants from ordering British trade goods. 
In August 26, a mob in Boston attacks the home of Thomas Hutchinson, Chief Justice of Massachusetts, as Hutchinson and his family narrowly escape. Now, in between all this, there have there's mobs. I mean, people are out in the streets. Um, you know, Sam Adams is is uh, giving speeches, and and John Adams is very worried about him and his his. Uh, he, he's seems to think Sam Adams and his crew are too violent. You know, they're, they're gonna it's not gonna be good and, and so he was he was um trying to tamp down Sam Adams. But uh Sam Adams was was really the he he was what would you call it? Um he he was a well like in your washing machine, he was the agitator. He he was very busy. Um and November 1st, oh, no, wait a minute. I missed October. October in 65, the Stamped Act Congress convenes in New York City with representatives from nine of the colonies. The Congress prepares a resolution to be sent to King George III in the English Parliament. The petition requests the repeal of the Stamp Act and Acts of 1764. The petition asserts that only colonial legislatures on tax counts can tax colonial residents and that taxation without representation violates the colonists' basic civil rights. On November 1st, most daily business and legal transactions in the colonies cease as the Stamp Act goes into effect with nearly all of the colonists refusing to use the stamps. In New York City, violence breaks out as a mob burns the royal governor in effigy, harasses British troops, and loots houses. In December, British General Thomas Gage, commander of all English military forces in America, asked the New York Assembly to make colonists comply with the Quartering Act and house and supply his troops. Also in December, the American boycott of English imports spreads as over 200 Boston merchants join the movement. In January of 66, the New York Assembly refuses to completely comply with General Gage's request to enforce the Quartering Act. In March, King George III signs a bill repealing the Stamp Act after much debate in the English Parliament, which included an appearance by Ben Franklin arguing for repeal and warning of a possible revolution in the American colonies if the Stamp Act was enforced by the British military. On the same day it repealed the Stamp Act, the English Parliament passes the Declaratory Act, stating that the British government has total power to legislate any laws governing the American colonies in all cases whatsoever. In, in April, news of the repeal of the Stamp Act results in celebrations in the colonies and a relaxation of the boycott of imported English trade goods. In August, violence breaks out in New York between British soldiers and armed colonists, including Sons of Liberty members. The violence erupts as a result of the continuing refusal of New York colonists to comply with the Quartering Act. In December, the New York legislature is suspended by the English Crown after once again voting to refuse to comply with the Act. In 1767, in June, the English Parliament passes the Townsend Revenue Acts, imposing a new series of taxes on the colonists to offset the cost of administering and protecting the American colonies. Items taxed included imports such as paper, tea, glass, lead, and paint. The Act also establishes a Colonial Board of Custom Commissioners in Boston. In October, Boston 
Bostonians decide to reinstate a boycott of English luxury items. And this brings us, let's see, to 1768. Now, <clears throat> that was a rather important year also. And this is the year that she comes in. Do you want me to read this year, the 68, or, yeah, you want me to read 68? I do. I want you to read the 68, but before we move on, just think about this. Look at all that that's going on. I mean, yeah. goodness gracious. And, and the whole time, that, well, first, he left in 67, and he didn't tell his wife and sister anything that was going on. They didn't come over till the next year. And he didn't say, no, 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 don't come over. It's, you know, it's kind of dicey over here. He didn't tell them anything. He wanted them to come to America, knowing full well what was going on over there. Because well, he, he'd been there for a year. Yeah, but the thing is, um, Hutchinson went away. I mean, Hutchinson just, he gave up. The, the king said, you're ineffective, come home. So he kind of came home, went back to England with his tail between his legs. And he sent over Gage. And Gage, of course, you know, being a general, he was military. And he he felt, you know, he'd been in America. He knew he um, had been, you know, he spent quite a bit of time. Didn't he have an American wife? I think he did. But anyways, you know, he, he knew of the colonies. And he thought, well, we'll just, you know, we'll get this taken care of in no time. You know, it won't take that long. We'll, we'll get Sam Adams and... Uh, John Hancock and, um, oh, who was the other one? Sam Adams, John Hancock, and, and Paul Revere. They were on the hit list. Uh, George wanted them badly. And he sent Gage over with the instructions, you put this stuff down. You just, you just get these colonists back in line. And, um, I, but he was doing everything that, he was telling his generals and, and his governors to do things that would, would only rile them up, you know. Um, so it, hmm, there was a, that was really the, the great divide. Uh, because the English, the aristocracy in England didn't feel that the colonists were on equal terms with them, even if you were in the aristocracy in the colonies. If you had been born in the colonies, you were a colonist, therefore you weren't really an Englishman, so therefore you were not of equal stature because they were quite, um, they felt they were superior to everybody in the world, apparently. And uh, so it was, here was this American spirit made up of people who had been oppressed, persecuted, Looking for you know how to make money, you know the the, the uh, financiers, the merchants and whatnot, wanting to come over and and see if they could you know grab the brass ring, start a new life, um, live the way they want to live, and they've been doing this for 150 years, and all of a sudden they're being told that they can't live like that anymore. And the people in England who are making these, um, you know, are legislating and debating this, um, a lot of them had never been over the colonies. They had no desire to go to that, that wilderness area. And they had no clue as to 
who these people were. So there was a right. great divide. Okay, finish uh, 1768. All right, now in February, Samuel Adams of Massachusetts write a circular letter opposing taxation without representation and calling for the colonists to unite in their actions against the British government. The letter is sent to assemblies throughout the colonies and also instructs them on the methods of the Massachusetts General Court is using to oppose the Townshend Act. 1768 in April, England's Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord Hillsborough, <coughs> excuse me, orders colonial governors to stop their own assemblies from endorsing Adam's circular letter. Hillsborough also orders the governor of Massachusetts to dissolve the general court if the Massachusetts Assembly does not revoke the letter. By month's end, the assemblies of New York or New Hampshire, Connecticut, and New Jersey have endorsed the letter. In May, a British warship armed with 50 cannons sails into Boston Harbor after a call for help from custom commissioners who are constantly being harassed by Boston agitators. In June, a customs official is locked up in the cabin of the Liberty, a sloop owned by John Hancock. Imported wine is then unloaded illegally into Boston without payment of duties. Following this incident, customs official sees Hancock's sloop. After threats of violence from Bostonians, the custom officials escape to an island off Boston, then request the intervention of British troops. In July, the governor of Massachusetts dissolves the general court after the legislature defies his order to revoke Adams' circular letter. In August, in Boston and New York, merchants agree to boycott most British goods until the Townsend Acts are repealed. In September, at a town meeting in Boston, residents are urged to arm themselves. Later in September, English warships sail into Boston Harbor. Then two regiments of English infantry land in Boston and set up permanent residence to keep order. So this is where it's at. It's getting very, very tense in Boston. And the you-know-what is just about to ready to hit the fan. And there she is coming over with a ba- the, the sister-in-law has a small baby, and she doesn't have a husband because she's relying on any kind of protection from her brother. Um, they, both, they all are. And they, this was going on, and he had no way of stopping them, even if he had wanted to, because they were traveling, and he couldn't tell them, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he couldn't stop the boat. Oh no! It, it was it was uh, difficult to get mail to them in the middle of the Atlantic. Okay, so I'm gonna give we're, we're gonna do a lot of background on this because it was really important, and uh, I'm gonna read a piece from RevolutionaryWarAndBeyond.com, and it is called Commissioners of Custom Act. To kind of give you an idea of what he was, you know, in, in what they his duties were, what they intended to do. Um, hold on a minute. Okay. I dropped something on the floor. Ah, I just dropped something else. Oh no. Okay. Let me get to this first. The Commissioner's Customs Act was one of the five council acts that placed new taxes on various items imported 
into Britain's North American colonies and created a new regime to enforce regulations and prosecute smugglers. The Commissioners of Customs Act created a new custom board for the North American colonies to be headquartered in Boston by five customs commissioners. New offices were eventually opened in all other ports as well. The board was created to enforce shipping regulations and increase tax revenue. Prior to this, the control of customs enforcement was handled by the customs board back in England. Due to the distance, enforcement was spotty, taxes were avoided, and smuggling was rampant. Once the new customs board was in action, enforcement increased and thus confrontation with smuggling colonists. Incidents between customs and officials, military personnel, and colonists broke out across the colonies, eventually leading to the occupation of Boston by the British troops. This eventually led to the Boston Massacre. The taxes of the Township Act were eventually repealed except for the tax on tea. This led to the Boston Tea Party and the eventual closing of Boston Harbor and the takeover of Massachusetts government by Parliament opening the door to the American, Re- Re- uh, American Revolution. The Townsend Acts were one of the primary events leading up to the American Revolution. And they have the actual act, but I don't, I'll, I'll read it if we have time later on. I, I don't want to read the whole thing. So that, this is what was going on when she arrived in Boston. And um, he, they ended up, well, let me see if I have it in her history. Because um, yeah, so she already brought, she arrived in, 19, in 1768, and the, the letters she wrote from the colonies were posted from Castle William. Now, could you explain what Castle William is? I know you sent me the link, but I didn't want to get into the weeds too much with it. Can you just give us an overview? Castle William is yeah, because you knew you knew right off the top of your head. That's why I wanted you to say it. It's Fort Independence now. Um, they, it was. Uh, it provided harbor defenses for Boston. It's located on Castle Island, and uh, it, it, it's been um, occupied by various fortifications since 1634. And then the first fort to be constructed on Castle Island resulted from a visit by Governor John Winthrop. Okay, but so she wasn't in Boston proper. They, they, these commissioners left Boston proper. Islands, um, and and Boston was. They called it a peninsula, but it was damn near an island because the neck was so thin. But um, Castle Castle or I uh, uh, Castle Island um, is uh, uh, you know in South Boston. Or, uh, uh, south of Boston, um, it was connected to the mainland by a narrow strip of land in 1928, and thus is no longer an island. But it was an island at the time, and they uh, they they just kept it because it was in a really good place to protect, you know, like Boston Harbor and and uh, the the town, you know, from from the beginning. It's just it's strategic. Place, so. and well, but again, she was not in Boston proper because they kind of like went to go there to, to hide, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the loyalists went to Castle William, or uh, yeah, Castle William, in 
or whatever. Yeah, I think it was uh, known as that. Um, I mean, it was it was uh, abandoned um, by the British during the American Revolution, but that's where the troops were. You know, it was a fort. The troops were there, so if you were a loyalist, you know, your first thought was to go where the troops were. Right. Last, that's the point. And then an army that went over there, so it was different. Okay. Now, we're going to, uh, Deb is going to talk to us about how her, her brother meets the locals when he gets there. Okay. All right. I think I, God, did it go, did I hit the wrong button? Hold on, let me, <laughs> let me get this up here. I, I had them all up and then, you know, they, because you hit this and you hit that. And yep. I hit it because I. I know. <laughs> yeah, see, just see it on my thing. Where the, oh, here it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Because there's two that, um, this is from the website, Boston 1775 by J.L. Bell. We have have been to his website before. It's it's really good if you get a chance to go on over. Um, He's a historian and uh, Massachusetts. Okay writes about Henry Hulton meeting the locals. Henry Hulton was an English bureaucrat who arrived in Boston as one of the new commissioners of customs in 1767, responsible for collecting the towns and duties. He happened to debark on November 5th, known in Boston as Pope Night, because of the raucous anti-Catholic processions that consumed the day and night. Lord George Sackville later Germain, and minister in charge of the colonies during the Revolutionary War, recorded his the secondhand description of the commissioner's reception. It ended on the 5th of November, and the populace were then carrying in procession the Pope, the Devil, and the Pretender, in order to commit them to the flames in honor of Protestantism. These figures met the commissioners at the waterside and were carried before them without any insult through the streets, and whenever they stopped to salute an acquaintance, the figures halted and faced about till the salutation was over, and so accompanied them to the Governor Hutchinson's door, where the devil, etc., took their leave with loud huzzas from the mob. That quote is from a letter printed in the 49th volume from the UK's Historic Manuscripts Commission. I quoted a bit more in my essay on Pope Night in the Dublin Seminars World of Children volume. According to Halton's sister Anne, who's Reports were published in 1927 as letters of a loyalist lady. The mob carried 20 devils, popes, and pretenders through the streets with labels on their breasts, liberty and property, and no commissioners. But Commissioner Halton laughed at them with the rest. Halton became less pleased with the locals' attitude as time went on. This is from a letter he wrote in February 1770, now kept at the Houghton Library at Harvard. See, this is why I can't get a lot of this stuff. They're in private, um, private. Uh, well, they they're 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 given to, you know, like the Houghton Library at Harvard or other places like that. And it is, 
The servant will not call a person he lives with master, and they have the utmost aversion to wearing anything in the shape of a livery or performing any office of attendance on your person or table. We have, however, a coachman who had the fortitude to drive us in spite of the ridicule of his countrymen who point and look at him with contempt as he passes by. The people are very inquisitive and what we should call impertinent. They never give one a direct answer, but commonly return your question by another. And if you fall in with them on the road or at a public house, they will directly inquire of you who and what you are and what is your business. One day I overtook a countryman on the road, and after saying something to him about the weather, he began, Are you from Boston? What is the news? Are you a merchant? Me hap, you are going into the country to get in your debts? Can you lend a body 102 pounds? No, you can if you would. <laughs> so, like I said, unfortunately, those who came over who were in a high position didn't think much of the colonists, but even George Washington had a hard time with the the uh, Massachusetts folk. And me being from Massachusetts, it's totally understandable because Massachusetts, New England folk are quite different from the Southerners. Okay, was that it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. All right, so now I am going to talk about the soldiers that were in Boston. And this is from LOC.gov, and it's titled The American Revolution, 1763 to 1783. I'm going to start at the beginning of it um, because uh, it, it, it talks again about the counts of duties and stand back, and we already went through that. So the British also established a book. Board of Custom, uh, Customs Commissioners, whose purpose was to stop colonial smuggling and the rapid corruption of local officials, officials who were often complicit with, in such illegal trade. Now, Deb, I wanted to ask you a question because they don't really say in these articles, how would they enforce it? Are they using the soldiers to enforce this? Yeah. Okay. Because none of these articles actually say how, they just said what they're supposed to be doing. But I mean, again, and this is the question that we always have here, that I have here about the United States of America. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to enforce these things? Like they're talking about the gun control. How are you going to enforce taking my guns away? What body are you going to, uh, and you know, what body are you going to use to do such a thing? Right, Deb? Because you can make a law, but you have to have enforcement of it. Yep. And if you think about this, ladies and gentlemen, are we not going through what these colonists are going through right now? And we're not going through it from our president. We're going through it from our own people, the bureaucrats, the judges, the people we elect to, the, to our, our county commission. These are, this is not coming from a foreign country. This is coming from our own countrymen. This is what makes me so sad and angry at the same time. I just don't understand how you could do this to your own countrymen. Do you know what I'm saying, Deb? Well, yeah, and, and that's what upset them so much because the colonists, you know, most of them came from England. You know, that was the mother country. 
And here's, you know, the mother country doing this to their their own. That's why, you know, it was just, it was a slap in the face, punch in the gut. That's why it was a civil war. So the board was quite effective, particularly in Boston, its seat. Little wonder, then, that Boston merchants were angry about the new controls and helped organize a boycott of goods subject to the town's duties. In 1768, Philadelphia and New York joined the boycott. As the boycott spread, harassment of customs commissioners grew apace, especially in Boston. As a result, the British posted four regiments of troops in Boston. The presence of British regular troops was a constant reminder of the colonists' subservience to the crown. Since they were poorly paid, the troops took jobs in their off-duty hours, thus competing with the city's working class for jobs. Now, I have never heard that. I have never seen it in any movie or reenactment of this. Um, and even in the, the, the Everyone Loves the Tout, the John Adams uh, movie, I had no clue at all until Deb found this, that they were taking jobs. I mean, that's a big deal, Deb, don't you think? Well, yeah. And sounds kind of like what we're going through now, only not with the military, but... Well, and, and, and how do we know that the, they didn't coerce these people to hire them, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you would have to be, you know, very sure of yourself if you said, no, I really don't want to partake in your employment here, sir, and then you would be in trouble. Yeah, and employing them. That would really upset the colonists. (laughs) The two groups often clashed in the street. In March 1770, just when Parliament decided to repeal the Townsend duties on everything except tea, but before word of the repeal reached the colonies, the troops and Boston workers again clashed. See, they didn't show this. They've never showed that it was the troops and Boston workers that clashed. They just show them as regular people. You know, they, they, they really didn't have any, the Boston Massacre, and we've heard, we've read a couple of different uh, versions of it. They've never showed it like this, Deb. They never said that they were workers. This time, however, five Bostonians were killed and another dozen or so were wounded. Almost certainly the Boston Massacre, as colonists called the episode, was the result of confusion and panic by all involved. Even so, local leaders quickly publicized the incident as a symbol of British oppression and brutality. Overall, American revolutionaries viewed English actions from 1767 to 1772 with suspicion. They read in British policy a systematic conspiracy against their liberties. Does that sound familiar, folks? They read in British policy a systematic conspiracy against their liberties. That is exactly what is happening right now. We are living through this. Uh, As the colonists thought, tax revenues fed corrupt British officials who used money they coerced from the colonies to line their pockets or to get power. That's what they're doing right now. 
hire additional tax collectors and pay mercenaries to come to America and complete the process of enslaving colonists. We are being enslaved. This is why Deb and I do this, this show. History is repeating itself because we did not learn history. No one taught us proper history ever. And it is happening again. All right, let's see. Now, I need you to go to the colonialsociety.org chapter one. Yep. I, I have uh, sometimes the uh, internet comes and goes, so you have to bear with me while I do wait for. There we are. Okay. So this is this is um, from the Colonial Society of Massachusetts, um, Volume 80, Henry Holton and the American Revolution, um, and it's some account of the proceedings of the people in New England from the establishment of a board of customers in America to the breaking out of rebellion in 1775. So this is Chapter One. Uh, Progress of American Revenue from the Act of the Sixth to George II to the Establishment of a Board of Customs in America. Okay, in the year 1733, the Parliament passed the Act of the Sixth, George II, Chapter 13, for the encouragement of His Majesty's sugar colonies. By this Act, duties were imposed on the produce of American plantations and foreign West India, foreign West India islands not under the dominion of His Majesty of um, nine, um, there would be, is this, you have to excuse me, the, uh, the format of this is not very good. Um, the act obtained by the influence of the West India planters, instead of operating as a fund of revenue as a source of smuggling and corruption. The ministry, having granted the planters their desires, took no measures to enforce the act, but winked at the prostitution of the national authority, at the connivance of the officers of customs, and the illicit commerce of the people, which introduced a depravity of morals and alienated the subjects from their duty to government. No attention was paid to the conduct of the revenue officers, and indeed from the dispersed state of the trade and wide extent of coast in a new settled country, under different governments where the authority of the crown was feeble, little could be expected from the most virtuous and vigilant officers. On, on passing this act, several additional officers of the customs were appointed to carry it into execution, whose salaries were to be paid out of the duties arising from the act, but many of these soon gave up their offices on there being no prospect of receiving any salary on these terms. If the act was impolitic or could not be carried into execution, why was it suffered to remain so long unrepealed? If the conviction of the guilt brought on the subject and officer by perjury and connivance was not a sufficient inducement with the ministry, yet the consideration of alienating the subjects from the laws and authority and making them enemies to order and government should have prevailed with them. No, for many years, Many, many years, the temptation to elicit practices was open and unrestrained, and the officers countenanced in giving a sanction to perjury and sharing in the advantage of connivance. In their accounts, no returns were made for 
uh, were made of duties received on foreign West India voyages. The vessels all entered in ballast, hence smuggling became established in principle corrupted by an indulged prostitution of the law. This law, though, did not operate, yet continued unaltered till 1763, till which time America never seems to have been considered in any other than a commercial light. The objects of establishing good government, supporting the authority of the mother country, were lost sight of. Mr. George Grenville, who was minister at this time, was intent on schemes of national economy. The peace with France was just concluded, and he saw with concern the amazing debt of the nation, a great part of which had been contracted in the defense of America. He therefore thought it just that just that, that country should bear its proportion of the public burden. And this view of the act of the four, George, or George or, um, was passed after the fourth was passed. Establishing new provisions and regulations for improving the American revenue and defending securing and protecting those dominions, and then an additional duty was laid on foreign white sugar and duties on several other articles imported into America, and the duty on foreign molasses was reduced to 3D a gallon. I'm not sure what three what the D is for. I couldn't find out. And provision was made by this act for the distribution of seizures to be made by officers of the Navy who were intended to be empowered to act as officers of the revenue on board His Majesty's ship for the support of the laws of trade and revenue in America. In July 1763, the Secretary of State wrote to the several American governors in very strong terms, urging them to support the officers of the revenue, acquainting with them that an act had passed for improving that revenue and that the commanders of His Majesty's ships would be furnished with deputations from the commissioners of the customs in consequence thereof. Several small vessels were accordingly employed in North America, and in June 1764, His Majesty's schooner St. John, Lieutenant Hill's commander, made a seizure at Rhode Island. Some days after the people rose, an officer and party of men who went on shore to take a deserter and rescued him, then took the officer prisoner and wounded most of the boat's crew with stones. They afterwards sent a sloop in some boats full of men to the battery and fired several shots at the schooner and did not desist till the squirrel sloop of war, then there, brought her broadside to bear upon the battery. Notwithstanding this outrage and insult, no notice was taken, it, taken of it by governor, government and the colony of Rhode Island continued to brave the authority of Great Britain and several acts of provoking insult on chastened. Mr. Grenville continued his attention to American regulation and economy in the next session of Parliament, and upon the principle adopted in the former session, he got the sanction of Parliament to the famous American Stamp Act. The colonies had been made acquainted the year before, in 64, through their agents that Parliament expected them to raise a revenue towards defraying the necessary charges for the defense and the administration of civil government that their assemblies might make the necessary provisions if they would. But the assemblies ne neglected doing anything therein, and the parliament passed the staff to act the next session. Though the principle might have been just in the mode proper, at the extension of the duty to such a number of articles and the quantum with which many of them were charged, and was certainly grievous, in any view it was highly impolitic 
To lay a due duty so burdensome on the subject in its immediate operation as the Stamp Act would have proved, in the event showed how erroneous the measure was of attempting to raise a revenue in a remote country where the powers of government were weak and the legislatures not thoroughly acquainted with the particular local circumstances of the several provinces. As soon as it was known in America that it was an agitation to lay a stamp duty in the colonies, a spirit of opposition to the measure was raised throughout the continent, and several of the colonies' assemblies passed resolves, declaratory of their title to all the rights and privileges of Englishmen. No doubt if Mr. Grenville had continued in administration, but the Stamp Act would have been greatly altered on the inconveniences attending its operation being properly represented, but the people did not wait for such gentle means of seeking redress. The ferment that was raised against their act was soon followed by violence and outrage, and the people vented their fury on the individuals that were most obnoxious to them. At Boston, they pulled down the houses of Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson and Mr. Hallowell, the comptroller of the customs, assaulted the secretary of the province, Mr. Oliver, who was appointed the staff master for the district, and obliged him to resign his commission. At Rhode Island, they pulled down the houses of Mr. Howard, Dr. Moffat, and Mr. Johnson, and throughout the continent obliged the stamp masters to renounce the exercises of their offices. After having prevented the operation of the Stamp Act, a plan of resistance to the authority of Parliament was concerted throughout the continent. In October 1765, a Congress was held at New York, the deputies from the several provinces in which they passed sundry declarations of rights and liberties and of the grievances on which they labored, amongst which they resolved that they were entitled to all the rights and liberties of the natural-born subjects within the kingdom of Great Britain. That they were not, and from local circumstances, could not be represented in the houses, House of Commons in Great Britain. That the Stamp Act and several other acts had a manifest tendency to subvert the rights and liberties of the colonists, and that it was their duty to endeavor by a loyal and dutiful address to his majesty and humble applications to both houses of parliament to procure the repeal of the stamp act and of all clauses of any other acts of parliament whereby the jurisdiction of the admiralty is extended and of the other late acts for the restriction of American commerce. Had Mr. Grenville continued in power, perhaps such measures would have been adopted as would have convinced the Americans that they should not insult the authority of the Parliament with impunity. But at the close of that session of Parliament, in which the Stamp Act was passed, a Regency Bill was brought into the House, and Mr. Grenville, differing in opinion with the members in the Cabinet as to the Princess Dowager of Wales being nominated as one in the Regency, in case there should be a demise of the Crown during the minority of the successor, he was no longer able to maintain himself as minister and retired from public service. On Mr. Grenville's resignation, the Marquess of Rockingham was appointed First Lord of the Treasury and as a new minister frequently comes in in opposition to his predecessor, so he generally adopts different measures. In this state of the ministry, the advices of the proceedings of the Americans against the operation of the Stamp Act were received and the ministry, instead of being awakened by the outrages of the Americans to a support of the power of Parliament, sought to draw a popularity to themselves by attending to the clamors that were raised against the conduct of the former administration. The merchants and manufacturers were urged to join in petitions against the act, and the ministry resolved to support a repeal of it. 
Nevertheless, the court was adverse to the measure, and on the first moving of this business in the House of Commons, there were a great number of the king's servants in opposition to administration. But the, administ but the ministry being bent upon the repeal and the cabinet considering that rejecting the measures of the ministers must occasion a change in the ministry in the middle of a session and throw the national affairs into confusion, they yielded to the ministers in office and suffered the Stamp Act to be repealed. Thus, the national authority gave way to commercial views and the popular cry. The colonies triumphed, the Stamp Act was repealed, and from that day the Parliament of Great Britain was no longer respected. Their right to make laws binding on the colonies was denied. The operation of their acts was resisted and the principles of independence in general avowed. In the debates on the repeal of the Stamp Act, Lord Chatham made a famous speech in which he said he rejoiced that America had resisted. This declaration had a great effect on the Americans, and they were animated in their resistance to the authority of Parliament by hearing of the speeches of several great personages in their favor. After repealing the Stamp Act in 1766, the Parliament, during the Rockingham administration, made a further alteration in the American revenue by the sixth whereby some of the duties laid by the fourth uh, were repealed, and the duty reduced on all molasses imported to 1D per gallon. 1D, I gotta find out what the D stands for. Driving me nuts. In the summer of 1766, the Rockingham party went out of office when they were succeeded by the Duke of Grafton as First Lord of the Treasury and Mr. Charles Townsend as Chancellor of this after so much had been done and undone in the affair of American taxation, one would have thought that the ministry would have suffered that business to have lain quiet for some time. At least one would have imagined that measures would have been taken to strengthen the hands of the government and support its authority before any new revenue laws had been imposed. To enact and suffer that act to be denied and trampled upon with impunity must be very degrading to government, Yet in one instant, it might have been thought most prudent to submit to the indignity and not enforce the compliance with the law, but to repeal the measure and not guard against the consequences, to plunge the nation again into circumstances of receiving aggravated insult and indignity is truly astonishing. And for several years, to bear an accumulation of disgrace from its subjects without an exertion of power in the support of its honor and authority is very surprising. Yet, such was the case. In April 1767, the commissioners of the Customs in London presented a memorial to the Lords of the Treasury on the propriety of establishing a Board of Customs in America, and amongst other reasons, represented that the oppressions the officers of the revenue labor under in America have lately grown to such an enormous height that it has become impossible for them to do their duty, not only from the outrage of mobs, but for fear also of excessive verdicts and judgments in the provincial courts and even of criminal prosecution. Soon after this memorial was given in, an act was passed to put the customs in America under the management of commissioners to reside in that country. Immediately on the passage of the act for establishing a board of customs in America, an act was passed imposing duties on paper, glass, red and white lead, tea and painters' colors for defraying the charge of administration of justice and the support of civil government. This act, setting aside the bad policy of lading duties on British manufacturers, was laid on such articles as made the ascertaining the duties on them very fretful and troublesome, particularly the paper of which there were more than 60 sorts expressed 
on which the duties varied, and these articles being of small bulk might be easily run and the payment of the duties be evaded. But as a stamp act had been repealed the year before, it was very extraordinary that fresh duties should be imposed and no effectual measure taken to support the authority of government or conciliate the minds of the people. Instead of that, the commissioners were sent out with this new duty act in their hands, which took place in four days after they opened their commission. The stamp act was imposed on so many articles and laid so heavy on some of them as made it severe and raised the greatest opposition and resistance from the people to its operation. It was repealed without limitation and the Americans triumphed in their victory. Had it been continued on some articles of little consequence, the authority would have been supported and there might have been a better plea for altering the mode of taxation from that to other articles. But as the people, by resistance and opposition, had compelled government to repeal the former act, so as they equally resented the imposition of the new duties, they resolved on the like measures to get rid of them. And as the commissioners came out just as they took place, they considered the appointment of a board of customs as only a method adopted by government to support that act. So that the bad policy of joining the new duties with the establishment of the board increased their resentment to the latter measure. In the year 1771, under Lord North's administration, duties that had been imposed in 1767 were repealed except those on the tea, and in 1773 the duties that had been paid at home on tea exported to the colonies were taken off, and the East India Company entered on a measure of shipping their teas to America for sale on their own account, which produced a further opposition and resistance to the laws of Parliament. You know, hindsight's 2020, but still. That's why I say it, it really is uh, interesting to go and, and read some of the uh, debates that were going on during the 60s when all this was happening because um, it really gives you a, a view into human nature. Okay, uh, let's see. Now, the next part is obstructions to the collection of a revenue in America from the extent of the coast and the nature of trade and commerce. Okay, so this is still this is still number one, right? No, this is chapter two. Okay, that's the I'm going to do chapter two. Yeah, yeah, it's very short. It's not long like the other one. Yeah, and the reason we're doing this, ladies and gentlemen, is we're trying to show what was going on that led the colonists to do something as drastic as to rebel against their their, their government. Um, we're getting there pretty damn fast because. They're not listening to us, our own politicians, and that goes local as well as uh, state and national. They're not listening to us. We're the ones that have all the power. We're the ones that gave them their positions. We're the ones that are going to have to take their positions away from them. Well, and, and we have another thing thrown in. I mean, even though socialism was um, known as far back as, uh, you know, who was it that wrote about the utopia? Plato. Um, socialism as a form of government was known, but um, it wasn't practiced in England at the time uh, as such. Today, we have a large uh, section of the population in this country who 
are either, you know, self-identified socialists or um, communists. Yeah. They yes, keep talking about a democracy. We are not a democracy. We are a representative republic. And if you don't know the difference, look it up. There is a reason we're not a democracy. Our founders knew what democracies were. They're mob rule. And the Bolsheviks wouldn't put up with that either, I'll tell you. Um, they used the mob back in the, in the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. They used the mob to get their way. And then they became worse than, than the, the czars they had taken out of um, control. So be very careful what you wish for. And we're importing more and more socialists into this country. The kids are growing up being socialists. Our children, our children are being taught socialism is great. They want it. Yeah, well, Marx, Marx and Engels wrote the uh, Communist Manifesto. And if you haven't read the whole thing, um, I mean, there's that, that thing that goes around. It's on uh, YouTube where the, was it a senator that stood up and read the ten, um, the top ten or the first ten parts of the Communist Manifesto, but they wrote a a, a book, Engels and Marx, oh, and uh, you really need to read the whole thing. You can you can uh, listen to it if you don't want to read it. Um, if you want to do something else while you're looking into it, um, it's on YouTube. The Communist Manifesto as an audio book, so you can you can uh, you can listen to it, but. It, it, this is this is why it's so much more dangerous today than even you know when this this country was being founded because we do have the the communist socialist um, uh, interference. Thank you, George Soros and uh, Alinsky and that couple that said the best way to bring down a country was to bloat the welfare state. Oh, what were their names? Oh, the woman in the... She's still talking out there. Uh, Cloward and, uh, uh, and Piven. Right. I was just going to tell you that. <laughs> so anyways, this is why we're doing this. This is bad enough. We're past this, people. Okay, so this, this is going to be uh, colonialsociety.org, or this is Chapter 2, and I wanted to bring this out because it, it, uh, it talks about other, the other colonies, not just Boston, number one. And, it, and it's showing how rich in um, resources we were and still are if they, we are allowed to tap into it. The districts, of, and this also tells how difficult it was to the British, how our terrain really helped us during the revolution. And Deb and I say this all the time. Um, we always talk about the terrain. They really didn't, even though they had these reports, they really didn't know what they were getting into. Um, they figured that we're, we're like all the other colonies out there. And they have rough terrain too. I mean, India has rough terrain. Um, the uh, islands that they had. Um, had some places of rough terrain, but the, the difference is, and this is why I say the only world that I believe in and 
is the only world is America. America is my world because we actually have every single type of flora, fauna, you know, except for elephants and stuff like that, um, terrain that you can find throughout the world. We have deserts. We have mountains. We have uh, swamps. We have it all. It's all here. And that, that's one thing that really struck me when I traveled the country because I said, where the hell, why do you want to go vacation in Europe, for goodness sake? We have everything here, idiot. And now, if you really want to go, you're really idiotic because Europe is completely being taken over by Muslims. And your chance of getting shot at, raped, or had uh, acid thrown in your face, they're throwing acid in women's faces now, is like almost 100%. So good luck with that. All right. The districts of many of the ports in America were very extensive, abounding with numbers of bays, creeks, and harbors, convenient for the running of goods, and some thousands of vessels were employed in the coasting and fishing trade, which neither entered nor cleared any custom house. The people had been long accustomed to a great liberty of trade. All along the coast were scattered settlements. The first object in settling the country was to dispose of the lumber cut down from the lands that were cleared. They built the, they're talking about us, they built, built vessels to transport it for a market to the West Indies, which returned with cargoes of molasses and other goods, which we ended up learning, figuring out how to do ourselves. Thank you, my founding mothers, for homespun. Look that up too, ladies and gentlemen. And they carried on this trade as suited their convenience frequently running the whole or great part of their cargoes inshore in some of the bays or creeks in the unsettled parts of the country. The neglect of the coasting vessels of entering and clearing at the custom house when going within the same providence had been overlooked. They were employed in bringing concealed under their wood and lumber the goods that had been smuggled into some of the distant creeks and bays by the larger vessels, to the great towns where those commodities must be brought for market. These coasters were decked vessels from 20 to 90 tons burthen and were often used in foreign voyages. From the extent of the harbors or dis districts where custom houses were established, and there being no legal wharfs or quays, great frauds were committed even within the ports of entry and of the casks which were legally imported. Not half the duties were paid for the quantity which such tasks usually contain. Now, as colonists, we didn't think we had to pay for this stuff. This was our land, you know, this is our land. <laughs> this is our fish. This was our wood. Why do we have to pay you to do it? And that, that's exactly what's happening right now. I, I can't stand I have to pay property taxes. This is my property. Why do I have to pay somebody for it? I'm back to being the king, I'm the king's deer. In the eastern parts of the Massachusetts Bay, the lumber trade was so dispersed as not to be brought into a central port. In Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, there were no large towns. The planters and merchants being settled all over the country had been long indulged in loading and unloading their vessels in different parts on all the great rivers, many of them remote from the custom houses or any officer. In South Carolina, 130 or 40 schooners were employed in bringing the produce of the country to Charlestown and pretending to trade only with the Providence with country produce. They came in and out of port without entering or clearing, without permit or register, and we shouldn't have to either. 
And when the officers seized any of them, they met with so many difficulties and embarrassments in the provincial law courts that they were deterred from prosecuting such vessels. And that's another thing. We have to get control of the courts. All these judges need to be fired. Yes, I mean all of them. These schooners frequently made voyages into the far West Indies, smuggled cargoes of goods from thence, and assisted in the clandestine discharge of a larger vessel. In Rhode Island, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, there were no officers appointed by the Crown, but those of the Customs. This is a very, very, very strange. Doesn't this sound very dangerous, Deb? This is a dangerous job, don't you think? Hello? Yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, what happened? Nothing. I, I was answering you. No, I, I didn't hear you. Oh. I do now, but I didn't hear you before. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, a, this is a pretty dangerous job. Hmm? The state of government and the local situation of the country through this wide extended continent were great bars to any regulations, and the temper of the people and the timidity of the officers prevented the carrying into execution the laws already in being. Such was the state of trade in America on the establishment of the Board of Customs. In most of the colonies, there was no drawing the trade to any center without the greatest inconvenience to the people. And throughout America, the trade had been so long habituated in indulgences, so well practiced in smuggling, and the officers so long used to convenience and neglect that to establish and enforce regulations for better management required more authority than the board possessed or than government might choose to exert. Don't you wish it was that, that was how it was now? <laughs> they just they were regulated to death. Uh, yes. Okay, so I'm going to finish up Anne, and then we're going to finish up the timeline, and then that we're, we're actually running out of time for this to work. So the first letter she wrote from Anne did from the colonies were posted from Castle William, which we got all that into, a fort in Boston Harbor to which the family had retreated, along with other families of government agents, because of the threat of violence against them. In this letter to her friend, Elizabeth Lightbody, back in England, Anne Halton described the actions of the Minutemen, whom she called the Banditti, during the Battle of Lexington and Concord, April 19, 1775. Um, I looked up the word Banditti. It, it means like a highwayman. It means a, a thief, uh, someone who, who comes and uh, takes stuff from you. And that's, that's basically what, what it is, and that's what she called the Patriots. Here she is. On the 18th instant, at 11 at night, about 800 grenadiers and a light infantry were ferried across the bay to Cambridge, from whence they marched to Concord about 20 miles. The Congress had been lately assembled at that place, and it was imagined that the general had intelligence of a magazine being formed there and that they were going to destroy it. Now, a magazine is where you, where you um, store ammunition and firearms. That's why in, in the Constitution, that's the only property they're allowed to own is magazines, forts, and other needful buildings, not land. doesn't say anything about land. The people in the country who were all furnished with arms and had what they call minute companies in every town ready to march on any alarm 
had a signal. It was opposed by a light from one of the steeples in town upon the troops embarking. The alarm spread through the country so that before daybreak, the people in general were in arms and on their march to Concord. About daybreak, and it's amazing that she knows all this. You know what I'm saying, Deb? It just really is. Um, oh, could you t- tell me, how would she know all this? Because she's on that island? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, you have to remember, by this time, we're, we're, well, she's with the British troops, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And they know what's going on. I mean, they, they, the generals, they have messages going back and forth telling them what's going on. I mean, right. That was, that was a very important place, uh, 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 Castle Island. The fortification there was very important to the British. So imagine that there was, you know, high-level information going back and forth. That's how she would well, know. Her That's right. She was with the troops. I forgot about that. Okay. About daybreak, a number of the people appeared before the troops near Lexington. They were called to to disperse when they fired on the troops and ran off, upon which the light infantry pursued them and brought down about 15 of them. The troops went off to Concord and executed the business they were sent on, and on their return found two or three of their people lying in the agonies of death, scalped, and their noses and ears cut off and eyes bored out which exasperated the soldiers exceedingly. A prodigious number of people now accompanying the hills, woods, and stone walls along the road. The light troops drove some parties from the hills, but all the road being enclosed with stone walls served as a cover to the rebels, from whence they fired on the troops still running off whenever they had fired, but still supplied by fresh numbers who came from many parts of the country. In this manner were the troops harassed, in their return for seven or eight miles. They were almost exhausted and had expended near the whole of their ammunition when, to their great joy, they were relieved by a brigade of troops under the command of Lord Percy with two pieces of artillery. The troops now combated with fresh ardor and marched in their return with undaunted countenances, receiving sheets of fire all the way for many miles, yet having no visible enemy to combat with. For they never would face them in an open field, but always skulked and fired from behind walls and trees and out of windows of houses. But this cost them dear, for the soldiers entered those dwellings and put all the men to death. Lord Percy has gained great honor for his conduct through this day of severe service. He has exposed to the hottest of the fire and animated the troops with great coolness and spirit. Several officers are wounded, and about 10 soldiers, about 100 soldiers, sorry. The killed amount to so too near so as to the enemy, we may, we can have no, no exact account. But it is said that there was about 10 times the number of them engaged and that nearly 2,000 of them have fallen. The troops returned to Charleston about sunset after having some of them marched near 50 miles and being engaged from daybreak in action without respite or refreshment, and about 10 in the evening, they were brought back to Boston. The next day, the country poured down its thousands, and at this time, from the entrance of Boston Neck at Roxbury, round by Cambridge to Charleston, is surrounded by at least 20,000 men who are raising batteries on three or four different hills. We are now cut off from all communication with the country, 
and many people must soon perish with famine in this place. Some families have laid in store of provisions against the siege. We are threatened, but whilst the outlines are attacked with the rising of the inhabitants within them and fire and sword, a dreadful prospect before us, and you know how many and how dear are the objects of our care. The Lord preserve us all and grant us a happy issue out of these troubles. For several nights past, I had expected to be roused by the firing of cannon. Tomorrow was Sunday, and we may hope for one day of rest. See, you know, no matter what, ladies and gentlemen, they were all Christians. Even though, they, you know, I mean, the, the troops, they weren't as Christian as George Washington made sure our troops were. They definitely weren't. But they were Christians. Um, let's see. At present, a solemn dead silence reigns in the street. Numbers have packed up their effects and quitted the town. But the general has put a stop to any more removing, and there remains in town about 9,000 souls, besides the servants of the crown. These are the greatest security. The general declared that if a gun is fired within the town, the inhabitants shall fall a sacrifice. Amidst our distress and the apprehension, I rejoiced our British hero was preserved. My Lord Percy had a great many and miraculous escapes in the late action. This amiable young nobleman, with the graces which attracts admiration, possesses the virtues of the heart and all those qualities that form the great soldier. Vigilant, active, temperate, humane, great command of temper, fortitude in enduring hardships and fatigue, and intrepidity in dangers. His lordship's behavior in the day of trial has done honor to the Percy's. Indeed, all the officers and soldiers behave with the greatest bravery, they said. Okay. Then they have all this, the, they have what a Minuteman is, what a Grenadier is. I'm not going to get into that because I want to do more of the timeline. But by the end of 1775, having endured months in a besieged city, Anne Holton sailed for England. When their cause was defeated, about 20% of the Loyalists left the United States to settle in other parts of the British Empire, in Britain or elsewhere in British North America, especially New Brunswick. So that was Anne. Yeah, it must have been rather disappointing. <laughs> You're going to come over and start a new life and have a, you know an adventure, and you, end, you you walk into the first days of you know the prelude to war. Ah, <sighs> dear. Yep, yep. And didn't know, had no idea what she was getting into. Had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, talk about being. Uh, I don't know. I would be really panicked. I just, I really would have been. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Um, you, and you didn't know. I mean, both sides were, were rough and tough and, and did not so nice things. Both sides were nasty. You know, we, yep. you know the Patriots gave as good as they got to the Continental Army. I mean, we didn't... You have to remember that a lot of the British... Army, the the foot soldiers, um, not the officers, because you had to buy your your uh, commission to be an officer. But uh, you know, if you didn't have the money, you didn't get to do it. Um, but a lot of the foot soldiers, basically the king's cannon fodder, a lot of them were criminals. A lot of them were just taken off the streets because they couldn't make a living for themselves. So well, they they were they took themselves off the streets. 
Um, because, like I said, England or London, especially, but England was in a in a bad state during you know this after the war. So because God, the last the, the, the 1700s and the 1600s, my God, there were wars. They were a war within themselves. They were at war with other countries, and um, yeah. So, oh, the uh, but a lot of the soldiers were you know near to wells. It was their only option. It was that or prison. And prison was, you know, at least when they got in the army, they got fed, you know. So yep. It wasn't always the best of characters that were. All right, so now, getting to 1769, um, remember, um, they, they in 68, uh, they had dissolved the general court, um, which is why Sam Adams and, and Paul Revere and, and John Hancock were so upset because basically if they had been caught by the British, and the British were looking for them, um, they would have been taken to England for their trial, which wouldn't have been much of a trial and they would have hanged. So in, in March of 1769, Merchants in Philadelphia joined the boycott of British trade goods in May. A set of resolutions written by George Mason is presented by George Washington to the Virginia House of Burgesses. The Virginia resolves oppose taxation without representation, the British opposition to the circular letters, and British plans to possibly send American agitators to England for trial. Ten days later, the royal governor of Virginia dissolves the House of Burgesses. However... Its members meet the next day in a Williamsburg tavern and agree to boycott British trade goods, luxury items, and slaves. In July, in the territory of California, San Diego is founded by Franciscan friar Juniper Sierra. I don't know why they even have that in there. Who cares? <laughs> sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. California still leaves a bad taste. In October, the boycott of English goods spreads to New Jersey, Rhode Island, and then North Carolina. So, uh, 1770, the population of the American colonies reaches 2,210,000 persons. Violence erupts in January between members of the Sons of Liberty in New York and 40 British soldiers over the posting of broadsheets by the British. Several men are seriously wounded. March 5th. The Boston Massacre occurs as a mob harasses British soldiers who then fire their muskets point-blank into the crowd, killing three instantly, mortally wounding two others and injuring six. After the incident, the new royal governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, at the insistence of Sam Adams, withdraws British troops out of Boston to nearby Harbor Islands. The captain of the British soldiers, Thomas Preston, is then arrested along with eight of his men and charged with murder. In April, the Townsend Acts are repealed by the British. All duties on imports into the colonies are eliminated except for tea. Also, the Quartering Act is not renewed. In October, trial begins for the British soldiers arrested after the Boston Massacre. Colonial lawyers John Adams and Josiah Quincy successfully defend Captain Preston and six of his men who are acquitted. Two other soldiers are found guilty of manslaughter, branded, then released. Then they did brand them. British, yes, they, they actually branded them with an M. Um, 
In June, a British customs schooner, the Gatsby, runs aground off Rhode Island in Narragansett Bay. Colonists from Providence row out to the schooner and attack it, set the British crew ashore, then burn the ship. In September, a 500-pound reward is offered by the English Crown for the capture of those colonists, who would then be sent to England for trial. The announcement that they would be sent to England further upsets many American colonists. In 72, in November, a Boston meet town meeting assembles called by Sam Adams. During the meeting, a 21-member committee of correspondence appointed to communicate with other towns and colonies. A few weeks later, the town meeting endorses three radical proclamations asserting the rights of the colonies to self-rule. In March, the Virginia House of Burgesses appoints an 11-member committee of correspondence to communicate with the other colonies regarding common complaints against the British. Members of that committee include Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and Richard Henry Lee. Virginia is followed a few months later by New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and South Carolina. In uh, May 10, 1773, the Tea Act takes effect. It maintains a three-penny per pound import tax on tea arriving in the colonies, which had already been in effect for six years. It also gives the near-bankrupt British East India Company, a virtual tea monopoly by allowing it to sell directly to colonial agents, bypassing any middlemen, thus underselling American merchants. The East India Company has successfully lobbied Parliament for such a measure. In September, Parliament authorizes the company to ship half a million pounds of tea to a group of chosen tea agents. In October, colonists hold a mass meeting in Philadelphia in opposition to the tea tax and the monopoly of the East India Company. A committee then forces British tea agents to resign their positions. In November, a town meeting is held in Boston endorsing the actions taken by Philadelphia colonists. Bostonians then try but fail to get their British tea agents to resign. A few weeks later, three ships bearing tea sail into Boston Harbor. November 29th to 30th. Two mass meetings occur in Boston over what to do about the tea aboard the three ships now docked in Boston Harbor. Colonists decide to send the tea on the ship Dartmouth back to England without paying any import duties. The royal governor of Massachusetts, Hutchinson, is opposed to this and orders harbor officials not to let the ship sail out of the harbor unless the tea taxes have been paid. In December 16, 1773, about 8,000 Bostonians gather to hear Sam Adams tell them Royal Governor Hutchinson has repeated his command not to allow the ships out of the harbor until the tea taxes are paid. That night, the Boston Tea Party occurs as colonial activists disguise themselves as Mohawk Indians, then board the ships and dump all the 342 containers of tea into the harbor. Now, in March of 1774, an angry English parliament passes the first of a series of coercive acts called Intolerable Acts by Americans in response to the rebellion in Massachusetts. The, this, is where, this is where the you-know-what hits the fan. The Boston Port Bill effectively shuts down all commercial shipping in the Boston Harbor until Massachusetts pays the taxes owed on the tea dumped in the harbor and also reimburses the East India Company for the loss of the tea. Now, you see how long it takes for things to happen. That in, in the middle of December, they threw the tea in the harbor. Then in March... The English Parliament takes care of it. So things didn't happen all that fast. And by the time they got to something, something else had happened. You know, I mean, it just it took a while to get back and forth. So 
On May 12th, Bostonians at a town meeting called for a boycott of British imports in response to the Boston Port Bill. May 13th, General Thomas Gage, commander of all British military forces in the colony, arrives in Boston and replaces Hutchinson as royal governor, putting Massachusetts under military rule. He is followed by the arrival of four regiments of British troops. May 17 to 23, uh, colonists in Providence, New York, and Philadelphia begin calling for an intercolonial Congress to overcome the coercive acts and discuss a common course of action against the British. May 20th, the English Parliament enacts the next series of coercive acts, which include the Massachusetts Regulating Act and the Government Act, virtually ending any self-rule by the colonists there. Instead, the English Crown and the Royal Governor assume political power formally exercised by colonists. Also enacted, the Administration of Justice Act, which protects royal officials in Massachusetts from being sued in colonial courts, and the Quebec Act establishing a centralized government in Canada controlled by the Crown and English Parliament. The Quebec Act greatly upsets American colonists by extending the southern boundary of Canada into territories claimed by Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Virginia. In June, a new version of the 1765 Quartering Act is enacted by the English Par Parliament requiring all the American colonies to provide housing for British troops in occupied houses and taverns in occupied buildings. In September, Massachusetts Governor Gage seizes that colony's arsenal of weapons at Charlestown. September 5th to October 26th, the first Continental Congress meets in Philadelphia with 56 delegates representing every colony except Georgia. Attendants include Patrick Henry, George Washington, Sam Adams, and John Hancock. On September 17th, the Congress declares its opposition to the coercive acts saying they are not to be obeyed, and also promotes the formation of local militia units. On October 14th, a declaration and resolves is adopted that opposes the coercive acts, the Quebec Act, and other measures taken by the British that undermine self-rule. The rights of the colonists are asserted, including the rights to life, liberty, and property. On October 20th, the Congress adopts the Continental Association, in which delegates agree to a boycott of English imports, affect an embargo of exports to Britain and discontinue the slave trade. February 1st. Okay, i got to stop you right there because we're coming towards the end of the show. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully we'll be back tomorrow, next week. <laughs> Deb and I have to take our lives one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time. <laughs> oh, the right? best plans, you know, you might as well. It, well, everything's according to plan until you get there. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, we're at war. I know everybody doesn't think so, but we are. We are at full-blown war. And it is going to be, it's a civil war already. Uh, thank you, pink hat ladies, disgusting women. Our founding mothers are rolling over in their graves. Anyway, the only thing that we can fight with right now not with weapons, and hopefully it won't come to that, but getting pretty dicey, um, is knowledge. And that's why Deb and I do this radio show. You can also go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. You, well, you can download all the shows that are there. Uh, Uncooperative Radio is there. This show, The Woman of the Revolution, is there, and Patriot Pub is there, which is a day-by-day account 
by three self-taught historians of the Continental Convention of 1787, which was a runaway convention. Sorry, Mark Levin, you're wrong. Uh, so go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. Get your knowledge. So, Deb always takes us out. Okay, the one thing I want to say is, as you listen to what was going on in the 1760s and the early part of the 1770s, where King George and Parliament, let's call that the federal government, was disbanding the rights of the colonies, let's call them the states. Um, All I can think of is how much of our state sovereignty we have lost. And and they knew this. They knew this. They knew it would be up to the states and the people, the people of the states, to keep hold of their sovereignty. Unfortunately, our governors have sold us out for federal money. Um, politicians are politicians, and sadly they lie all the time. So think about that. Think about, you know, what our our founders and, and the colonists were fighting uh, for and against and what we're going through right now. And then throw some Bolsheviks into the mix. And it's interesting what might occur. But, you know, we keep praying for uh, uh, wise wise men to show up or wise women. It doesn't matter. Wise people to show up at this point and, uh, you know, um, a few more than we have today. So pray for wise people. Thank you. We also lost uh, one of our kids in uniform uh, last year. Well, he died on the 30th of March. Master Sergeant Jonathan J. Dunbar, 36, of Austin, Texas. He died in Syria as a result of injuries when an improvised explosive detonated. So if you give a thought to his family and uh, just uh, say a prayer for them and for the others who are there also and in every other hell hole in this goddamn excuse me, I, I do get emotional about pray for them and don't forget them when they come home. Go visit your local VA hospital and see how things are going there. Not going there, make some noise. Out and clear to your newspaper, to your radio station, to your Congress critters, to our President Donald J. Trump. Um, Just don't let it go by, because those of us who have vets in our lives do appreciate that. So, okay, people, thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the show. And like Susan said, hopefully, you know, God willing, we will be back next week, same time, um, with another uh, wonderful woman for you to be introduced to, and um, we shall, uh, you can always, uh, you know, contact us through the the, the talk show here if you wanted some links, because we save all our, our show links, so if there was something that you heard and couldn't quite get the uh, website, you know, you can always contact us and we'll get it to you. So, 
Y'all have a good week. Stay safe out there. Make some noise. And uh, God bless you and God bless this country. Y'all have a good week. Stay safe. Bye.